Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. I'm your host, Sinez Stepman, and on this 4th of July week, we are welcoming to the podcast a guest who, in his new book, asks us to dig a little deeper into the specifics of our heritage beyond some of the dueling buzzwords in our time about free speech and cancel culture. We have with us today Michael Knowles, um, who is the author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, which is available for purchase as we speak. He's also, um, you, many of you may know him as the host of the Michael Knowles Show, Knowles Show over at The Daily Wire, uh, The Book Club at PragerU, the popular podcast Verdict with Ted Cruz, um, or you might know him best for his previously published weighty tome, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, uh, but his new book provides a lot more words than that one did um, and a lot more to talk about. So welcome, Michael, uh, to High Noon. Inez, it's so good to be with you. So you've, you've written a book about speech, but I think people looking for a rallying cry against cancel culture or a defense of, of sort of an absolute notion of free speech um, will find what you've actually written in this book quite surprising. Uh, You're I really making an argument about not reasserting free speech as a free-for-all, which you say has never really existed, but restoring traditional boundaries on discourse. Could you maybe give us the, the quick version um, of that argument that you make? Yes, I, I suppose I did write a polemic about cancel culture, but maybe not from the perspective that <laughs> many conservatives would be expecting. I did also think it would be ironic and fitting, having written a book without any words, to write a book that's entirely about words. And so I, I really wanted to dig in on this manipulation of language, which I think is the primary instrument of the left in upending our culture. But the, the problem that conservatives have had, at least for the past 20, 30 years that we've been fighting political correctness. I think it goes back much further than that, but we've kind of been aware of it and fighting it for about three decades, is that we have misunderstood what political correctness is. I think, as I outline in my book going back to the 20s, I think that political correctness is a purely negative campaign to upend the traditional standards of our society, to just obliterate what we would call traditional society. And what conservatives have believed, for, especially in, in recent years, is that PC is a battle between free speech on the one hand and censorship on the other. And I don't think it's that. I think it's actually a battle between competing sets of standards, the traditional standards of conservatives and the anti-standard of the left. I think contrary to conservative self-flattery, I actually believe the left understands speech and censorship much better than conservatives do. And they've They've basically laid a trap for us with political correctness. There was this strange fact I noticed, which is that no matter how hard we fight against PC, we always seem to lose ground. Sometimes the harder we fight, the more ground we lose. Why is that? I think it's because either way that we react to PC advances political correctness. So you've got on one hand, the squishes, let's call them. These are the people who just go along with the new standard. They use the new language. They call men she and they whatever. You, you understand. Obviously, they're going to advance the left's cause. Then you've got the more stalwart conservatives. They say, I'm not going to go along with this new standard. No way. You can't tell me what to say. And they'll usually ground their arguments on a sort of free speech absolutism. They'll abandon standards entirely, not just the left's new standard, but all standards. And you see that the trap is, Either way you react, the traditional standards are abandoned. And because nature abhors a vacuum, the new left-wing standards enter into their place. And, and so I, I think the latter category are, are probably a little closer to it. They, they seem to think that they're really standing against it, but really they've just fallen for a trick whereby they are helping their, their enemies aggress. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's never been a good thing um, for one's job prospects, for example, to have a swastika tattooed on your forehead, right? Um, There have always been boundaries to discourse. And actually what you remind us of um, in this book is that uh, actually this is not, I would not call this a broadside on small L liberalism. You you may have some broadsides to make, um, but that's that's not really what this book was. I, I would rather characterize it as a reminder that in fact, what previous generations of what might be called the American right, perhaps not even conservatives, but the American right, um, did see a compatibility between certain limitations on speech and the fundamental idea of free speech, which of course is enshrined in the First Amendment and is it has long um, precedent in history in our culture. You're kind of reminding us of the fact that there were until basically the 1960s and 70s uh, quite a few limitations on on speech the way that, for example, libertarians would conceive of it today. I'm really pleased that you picked up on this because there seem to be two camps of the conservative discourse today. The people who style themselves classical liberals or libertarians, and I think they actually do a great injustice to both of those terms. I think re- I don't know what I would call, I just call them the squishes because they seem to think that you ought to be able to say whatever you want and sleep with whoever you want and also bomb the Middle East. And whatever that ideology is, I don't know what the name for it is. Uh, but you've got, you've got that group on one side, and then you've got what might be called the post-liberals on the other, who think that we ought to, you know, th- throw Tom- Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and George Washington over the side of the ship, and that America is basically unsalvageable, and it was always based on these these wrong premises from the beginning. And I'm making a much more modest argument. I'm saying, regardless of where you stand on the American right, the image of America as a place that permits all sorts of speech at all times, and gosh darn it, that's you know, the, as American as apple pie to permit drag queen story hour or something. It's just not true. It it has never been true. From the very beginning of our country, huge swaths of speech have been off limits. Uh, Threats, fraud, obscenity. As recently as a dozen years ago, we threw a pornographer in federal prison for almost four years just for obscenity, not because he possessed child pornography, not because he raped anybody, just for obscenity. We've had all of these sorts of restrictions. All societies will have standards. All societies will have taboos. And it wasn't so long ago that it was conservatives who were ostracizing, censoring, blacklisting, and even prosecuting communists in the United States. And, and people were defending it. Uh, William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, launched the post-war conservative movement. The guy's as mainstream as they get. He, he launched that movement with a book inveighing against academic freedom, which he referred to as a hoax. His next book was a defense of McCarthy, and he continued to defend McCarthy on national television a dozen years later. He said he doesn't want the society to be totally open. No society can be totally open. We have to agree on certain things. As you say, if you show up with a swastika armband at the water cooler, it's not cancel culture when you lose your job. Uh, When, to use his example in God and Man at Yale, when a neo-Nazi wants to teach sociology at Yale, they're probably not going to hire him, nor should they. We obviously make distinctions between good and bad and right and wrong, and, and we have certain taboos. What has changed is not that we cancel people. Uh, in the 50s, you'd be canceled for being a communist. Today, you'll be canceled for not being a communist. Uh, the, the fact that you can be canceled has not changed. It's, it's just the standard by which you would be canceled. And I think the sooner conservatives wake up to that fact, the sooner we can actually start pushing back against this very, very effective leftist strategy. It seems like this is an argument really for the reintroduction of the political, 
right? Um, who's going to decide what the boundaries of acceptable discourse and speech are going to be? First of all, I would say those are two slightly different topics, right? Like we might have a, a, a more or something closer to an absolute right, although as you point out, there were, have always been limitations even on that with regard to speech, but certainly not with regard to sort of societal um, opprobrium or consequences for that speech, what, what people are now calling cancel culture. Um, but you're see- you seem to be arguing that it's, it is a political matter where those boundaries are drawn and that essentially the left is fighting in that political sphere while the right is, is sort of um, surrendering that political sphere and retreating to the procedural. Um, but it's it seems to me that politics writ large has a paradoxically smaller and broader uh, role than it used to have, right? Mm. In our in our discourse, right? Yeah. In other words, we are um, arguing about quote unquote politics on the football field, um, and and in all kinds of things that used to be considered the personal or the private. Um, but on on the flip side it seems like a lot of really important matters, like for example, the question of what, where life begins, right? Um, or, or any number of, of important political questions have been taken out of the political sphere and put either into the courts, or as you mentioned with regard to coronavirus, these kinds of decisions that are, I would think are quintessentially matters of political judgment, right? Weighing different, um, you know, different consequences of a virus versus economic shutdown. Those are kind of quintessential political questions, those have been placed into essentially the bureaucratic realm or the realm of experts. I mean, how can we reclaim a space for the left and the right to actually meet in what might be called traditional political battle? This Obviously, is the, metaphorically speaking here. <laughs> right, right. This, Although increasingly it looks uh, quite literal. So we want to make sure that it remains metaphorical. Right. And, and the only way to do that is to re- restore a serious political realm. You've hit on the paradox of progressivism, under which everything becomes politicized, except for politics, which becomes depoliticized. So your your sneakers are pol- political, your chicken sandwich is political, who does the dishes in your house is political, but politics is not, abortion is not, uh, the death penalty is not, uh, taxes for goodness sakes. I mean, even they're trying to export that to genius climate bureaucrats, not even only in this country, but elsewhere as well. Uh, Dr. Fauci and his minions, t- totally unaccountable, totally unelected, uh, can shut down the entire world. Uh, and we, we really have nothing to say about that. So this was always baked into the pie of progressivism. But I, I don't think the right has helped itself very much. And we've we've taken slogans a little bit too far. It's actually just like free speech. We all like free speech. We've had a wonderful free speech regime in this country for a very long time. But when you turn that into a bumper sticker, uh, all bumper stickers are false. And so you're going to get caught up in your own, in your own nonsense. This was especially true with Andrew Breitbart, the patron saint of Hollywood conservatives, his, his famous dictum that politics is downstream of culture. Other people have made the observation too. To a degree, that's obviously true. Of course, culture influences politics. Of course, the movies and the mainstream media and the big technology and the schools, all these things influence culture or influence politics, rather. Politics influences culture, too. I I think right now, we're not not allowed to contradict Andrew Breitbart. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) this is like an outage living in New York, folks. (laughs) <laughs> Apparently, uh, even with your phone off, the the alert from the state comes through. They're warning that the power might get shut down because of the heat. Uh, apologies. <laughs> Please no, continue. Certainly not. I'm sure that was just an alert 
uh, that they're soon going to name who the mayor is. It's only going to take seven days to count the votes. It could be me, that. right? It could be at anybody. <laughs> uh, anybody could be the mayor at this point. But right. um, you were talking about Andrew Breitbart's famous maxim that politics is downstream from culture. Yes, of, of course it's true. It's an important call that Breitbart made. He was an extremely courageous guy, and I'm glad conservatives are beginning to engage in these cultural things. Come on, though. Politics influences culture too. And also the line between them can get a little bit blurry. So I look at, at Germany today and what was once called East Germany is almost entirely atheistic. About 10% of East Germans describe themselves as religious. More than 50% of West Germans describe themselves as religious. Is this because of the cultural differences and the regional variations in Bratwurst? You know, I think it might have more to do with the officially atheistic Soviet regime that, that dominated East Germany for the entirety of the Cold War. And very often, I think politicians use Breitbart's true enough maxim as an excuse not to do anything. They just, they, they feel that it is somehow illegitimate to wield political power. I think that comes from their own cowardice. I think they've forgotten that courage is not just a virtue, but it's the prerequisite of all of the other virtues and that it's not only acceptable, but it's perfectly right to exercise just political power on the happy occasions that the people give it to you. I mean, this is what we need to do. We've, we've now got this very, very shallow definition of politics among the progressives and on the right, I think we need to go back to good old Uncle Aristotle, who says that man is the political animal actually because we speak. You know, if, if you control speech in a regime, it, that's not just controlling some little aspect of the politics. It's controlling the whole thing. And in a self-government, we're supposed to persuade one another. We use our speech to, to deliberate and to persuade and ultimately to, to determine how exactly we want to live. And there's a cultural aspect. There's a political aspect. And sometimes it's a little blurry between the two. And uh, unfortunately, the, the left has been able to manipulate its perversion of, of the genuine, authentically political space to its advantage. And we've bought their argument and, and totally given up any, any power we might have. So I've, I have two pieces of pushback, I think, to that. The first is a quibble. Um, and the second one, I think, is, is uh, more substantive or a more substantive challenge, this, this view of political power influencing culture. Um, first, I, I think Andrew Breitbart a lot of people, and you kind of left room um, in the way you just described it for this idea, but um, I don't think anyone would accuse Andrew Breitbart of, of for example, stepping out of the political arena. I, I think no. what he was trying to do was something very similar to um, what you did when you spoke about occupational licensing, um, that you got you a lot of blowback on Twitter from David French and so on, um, when you said that occupational licensing you know, was not going to change the future of this country <laughs> and that the right spent disproportionate political capital and energy on it, even though you and I, just to be clear, I, I think we talked about this off air, we both support occupational licensing reform and think it's a good thing. So I, but I agree with you that it's it's a misapplied, you know, priority. I think that's kind of what Andrew was saying with that quote is that we are focused way too much on what the marginal tax rate is. Um, and we're not applying enough of our political capital. I didn't see him as precluding, but actually encouraging that kind of political exercise with a mind towards shaping the culture. I, I agree. Um, and but, I, I just want to clarify, I, I, my issue is not with Andrew Breitbart at all. I think Breitbart got it. And I think he was a really tough fighter. My issue is with politicians who turn his good insight into a bumper sticker and bumper stickers are always wrong. And, and I think that they, they use that as an excuse basically not to engage. But yes, in, in, this is why I often say Breitbart's view is 
true, true enough, uh, but we shouldn't take it too far because, uh, you know, if, if we had a country full of Andrew Breitbarts, I, I don't think we'd, we'd be in such a, a sorry state. Yeah. And, and, and your, your critique is also obviously true in, at some level, right? The, that um, obviously big pieces of legislation like the Civil Rights Act or even Supreme Court decisions like uh, the decision on gay marriage obviously do do and can, can and do swing, right? Political opinion and, and move culture. Um, but I, I guess the challenge, the more serious challenge would be this. Um, you know, in your telling in this book, which I think is largely accurate, the politically correct um, acquired a lot of the enormous power that they wield today only secondarily through politics. I mean, you, you point out that Marcuse ran a, a political party, but but here in uh, 2020 and 2021 in America, you know, BLM doesn't stand candidates for office, right? Um, they are running uh, essentially a campaign uh, that almost exclusively focuses not on public policy per se. There aren't a lot of other than the slogan defund the police. There aren't a lot of like, there's no specific list agenda items that they want Democrats in, in Congress to pass. Instead, they're wielding what might be termed cultural power, right? They're, they're wielding power through private institutions like the corporations that donate millions of dollars to them. They use the, the tactic uh, that you outlined so well in your book in terms of, of um, sort of inorganically shifting language. Um, these might be termed sort of, if not apol apolitical, then at least sort of secondarily political tactics versus just straight up running for office with a legislative agenda that passes laws that say, you know, these are, this is our vision for society. I, I think it's a fair observation. And I think the, the only real disagreement here or the only major disagreement is over the definition of political, because I, I do think both sides now take this really desiccated view of what politics is. And I, I think that we, we need to rethink exactly what we mean by that. Uh, you know, Mitch, Mitch McConnell the other day had a good observation. He said that woke corporations are beginning to behave like a parallel government. The hipster Rasputin over in Silicon Valley, Jack Dorsey and his comrades, censored and deplatformed the duly elected sitting president of the United States on January 7th and 8th. Regardless of what you think happened in the 2020 election, the man was the president and these three oligarchs booted him out of the public square. Those companies do control the discourse and in a republic, speech is politics. So I, I think that the line between private in enterprise and the government and the, the line between these companies and these uh, political bodies, I think it's a little bit blurrier. I think it, I just refer to it sort of as the blob. There are many deep ties between, for instance, the universities and research institutes and the government. We saw that especially during the, the coronavirus. And it's not only that the government funds universities and the universities provide the data and the statistics for the broader administrative state. That's where the term statistics come from, right? It's relating to the state. Uh, but they're, they're also shaping policy and uh, I think of it even as the way we look at deregulation. Both sides have deregulated since the 1960s and 70s. The left has deregulated on a social front, right? They've, they, you can sleep with whoever you want, basically. And the right has deregulated economically and because, of, because occupational licensing reform is the most important issue in the country, as many people have told us. And I, I think there are plenty of reasons for why this may have taken place. But as a result now, we don't live in some free age of Aquarius where we're all dancing around in a utopia. 
that power is going to remain. Their order will exist in, in some way or another. It's just been exported to Jack Dorsey and, and Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai and the other woke corporations and universities and, and, and all of these other institutions. So yes, I agree uh, that a, a lot of the power of the left and a BLM, to use a good example, is through massive corporations and, and shaking down corporations than it is through politicians. There's some of that through politicians. Like, you know, it's some of that through installing DAs. That's a, a little bit. But uh, I just think the line is a little blurrier there. I mean, I, I contrast in the book the way Bernie Sanders has led his career with BLM to make the point that Bernie just runs in elections. He usually loses and sometimes he wins. And BLM does not have a formal political party. They operate with the Democratic Party, but they're really operating in their own in their own sphere. I just think that those hard distinctions really began to melt away mm-hmm. in the latter part of the 20th century. And because conservatives couldn't recognize them, we haven't been able to, to effectively wield power since, no matter how many elections we win. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I largely think that's right. Um, and I wonder if it's kind of a point that some even on what might be termed the new right are missing. Um, because the underlying, whether whether you think that the methods to control or to fight back um, on cultural issues are, are, quote, capital P political or not, right? Um, I think a lot of people would agree that it will require some legislation, but it'll also require a lot of action through private institutions. Um, I sometimes yeah. I worry that the Trumpist right is going to make exactly the same mistake as the Reagan revolution. And, and the, exactly the mistake that Breitbart was pointing to, I think, um, with that quote, no matter how it might have been, you know, sort of mal quoted or used for other purposes by by um, a lot of other people. I, I fundamentally see the mistake of the Reagan, um, you know, Re- Reagan revolution is that we didn't take that moment. And Reagan himself recognizes as he left office, you know, in his farewell speech talked about, you know, how we've brought patriotism back, but we haven't re-institutionalized it, right? Um, and yeah. he talked about, you know, the influence of TV and movies and schools and how they're no longer kind of channeling in the same direction with the similar vision um, of the goodness of America. I worry that some of the new right, and I'm wondering if you have the same worries, that they, they also seem to be, to me, perhaps too much um, or exclusively focused on economic questions. Right. Um, They they don't seem as enthused about defunding the university system, which I would argue it should be a a very important priority for the right. Um, They seem much more enthused about giving out child tax credits. Now, even if I grant the premise that and I'm not going to go through the argument here about for or against child tax credits, but um, I, I find it sort of similarly uh, unreasonable or similarly improbable would be a better word that child tax credits are going to change the the future of the country in a fundamental way, um, as opposed to something like in some way attacking the academy or the university system that has really been the root of so much um, of this this political correctness, as you point out, in a long uh, sort of academic history. I agree entirely. And I think that there is an, an impulse to pander. Uh, this is, we were, we were told, I remember when President Trump passed the First Step Act, you know, this this idea that the reason that conservatives voted for him is so that he can let a bunch of criminals out of jail. I thought, ah, that's not, it was not that high up on my list of all the things that you could do right now. That was really one of his few legislative achievements. There was the First Step Act, 
there were more tax cuts. There you go, there's your tax cuts. I love tax cuts as much as the next guy, but you know, that and a buck 50 will get you a cup of coffee when you're, when you're trying to uh, really bring back your country and, and give it some life again. Um, and, and so the, the purpose of that was, you know, to have a big tent and, you know, th- the problem is, as Trump hit on with immigration, is that uh, tents, even big tents, need limits. A, a country needs a border. If it's going to be a, a country without borders, simply is not a country. And so I, th- I feel he had good impulses. Uh, but yes, how do you actually reinstitutionalize all of that stuff? I, I think we do not recognize the degree to which the left has... In, fairly subtly, but definitively, invaded and taken over all of these institutions. And we are still laboring under, especially with your university example, these preposterous notions of, for instance, academic freedom. So Buckley launches the conservative movement making fun of academic freedom, and he calls it a, a hoax. And he says, you know, a, a, a neo-Nazi would not be hired by Yale to, to teach a sociology class, right? Nor, nor, nor should he be that a fifth grade class, if we were talking about critical race theory today, a fifth grade classroom is not a free marketplace of ideas, okay? Conservatives very often contrast education with indoctrination. Those words mean the same thing. (laughs) It's just that one of them is good and one of them is bad. But of course, you, you know, another line that we hear is, we shouldn't teach students what to think, only how to think. Well, in order to know how to think, you, you need to know at least some basics of what to think. In order for me to, to know how to think about complex mathematics, I need to at least know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. In order to, to know about America, I need to know the significance of 1776, 1620, 1860. I mean, these are, these are important things. And by the way, if, if you ask me on a test, when did the Civil War start? And I say 1752. I'm going to be punished for that in a class, or I should be at least, right? Education is a coercive act where some things are right and some things are wrong and some things are true and some things are false. The, the problem is that free speech doesn't mean anything to people who have nothing to say. Uh, my real fear with why we haven't been able to institutionalize anything beyond just the cowardice of not wanting to actually risk our, ourselves is I don't know that we can qu- quite agree on what that substantive vision is. The left's substantive vision is clear. Tear it down. America bad. Rip it to the bottom. I mean, in Marx's term, he wrote in a letter to Arnold Ruga uh, to engage in the ruthless criticism of all that exists. And now we have whole theories devoted to that kind of criticism. What, what does the right really stand for? You know, in, in the Cold War, we at least had the Soviet Union to link together the traditional conservatives and the libertarians and the war hawk Democrats and later the neoconservatives and the populists and whoever. Uh, but after the Berlin Wall came down, what, what really links us together? I mean, I, I suppose this is what's really fatally rendered us speechless is that we, we don't really have anything to say. We're not putting forward a substantive moral vision. So we just get caught up on these ridiculous procedural bumper stickers. The reason the right won't defund the university is because it has convinced itself that uh, it would somehow be wrong to boot Marxists out of, out of not just the university, but, but to boot them out of the fifth grade classroom that we, we just we let the left run roughshod. They've got a, a substantive vision and, and we've got nothing other than some mild criticism of it. Um, so one of the, the substantive visions, um, it's hard to imagine anything more basic uh, that that was once considered so obvious um, in terms of substance and true substance to advance um, as, as the difference between male and female. <laughs> Right, uh, that that fundamental building block of life 
is now incredibly controversial. And I know you've been traditionally cancel cultured, right? Um, in terms of, uh, you know, screaming students, the the protests, I think you got, you know, bleach thrown on you. Yeah, someone threw um, some all, yucky all, all the rest of it for, yeah. for simply stating that reality that men and women are are different. Um, why Why does that building block reality seem to bring out particular rage in the left. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you or I could say that will enrage the left, but um, why is it that on this subject, you get it seemingly the most vigorous pushback, both from you know tech companies banning um, accounts and on, on the campuses and, and corporations, all of the, the institutions in which the left holds power, they cannot tolerate this bare, simple scientific fact of male-female difference. The ex-communist Whitaker Chambers famously described communism not as a recent ideology, but as the great alternative faith of mankind that began in the Garden of Eden when the serpent told Eve, ye shall be as gods. It's fitting, I guess, that we're talking about this during Pride Month, right? The pride, the deadliest of the seven deadly sins, the, the sin that caused Adam to fall from the garden. The, the purpose of political correctness, very basically, is to redefine reality. By redefining all the terms, you can redefine reality, and there, there are whole schools of, of academic thought that uh, will we'll say this, especially in the 60s and 70s, you would have people effectively saying that there is nothing but words. It's just, it's just all socially constructed. Words, 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 to quote Hamlet when he's pretending to be insane. Now, insane people quote it today as though, as though it were true. If you can not just redefine and reframe, to use the words of the 1619 Project, American history, not just redefine political arrangements, not just redefine how the citizen associates with his government, not even just redefine marriage, the fundamental political institution. But if you can redefine nature itself, if you can redefine, redefine what it means to be a man or be a woman, and you can get everybody else to go along with it, to not believe their lying eyes, but to believe the fantasy that you're telling them, then you have amassed as much political power as you possibly can. When the squishy conservative types ask me, oh, Michael, who cares about the pronouns? I, I always think the left seems to care. <laughs> they seem to be spending a lot of time and energy and money trying to get us all to call Bruce Jenner she. Why is that? Is it it's just a, a lark? It's just a strange caprice that they have? No, I think they know that language smuggles in whole premises. In the case of of the transgender ideology. It's smuggling in an ancient heresy called Gnostic dualism, the idea that my, my body has nothing to do with who I am. You know, I've got the Adam's apple, I've got the deep voice, I've got, I don't know, various appendages, you can just take my word for it. But, but somehow, if I think I'm a woman, then it's not even complex. It's not even that I'm 50-50. I simply am a woman. And what's ironic about them pushing this ideology is they're simultaneously pushing the materialist heresy, which is totally the opposite heresy, the idea that I have no soul, I have no mind really, I'm just my flesh, I'm a meat puppet, all of my joys and hopes and loves and fears are just illusions, just synapses firing off in my head, and so therefore I, I don't have any moral culpability or, or, or responsibility in the world. And they're, they're pushing these contradictory ideas at the same time because both of them oppose the traditional view of mankind, that uh, we're bo body, soul, and spirit, all joined together in one inextricable on this earth. If you can redefine that very nature, it, it is just like the end of 1984. I know it is a tired comparison. 
I know conservatives never shut up about 1984, but there's a reason for that. I think there are a lot of similarities. It is the moment when the big brother regime is forcing Winston to say two plus two equals five and to believe the two plus. If you really believe, I don't think that many people do, but if you really believe that Bruce Jenner is a woman, you have lost your faculties of reason. You have lost your ability to make any moral judgments and you've lost your, your capacity for self-government. Yeah, one, one more thing that I did very much agree with uh, in your book is, is that Huxley was in many ways uh, the more prophetic of, of the two. Um, but obviously that, that uh, metaphor and the, the usage of um, the two plus two equals five uh, endures not just in our politics, but for example, in, in um, absurdist movements in, in Poland, for example, who were pushing back against the communists because, uh, you know, exposing that kind of absurdity is in itself can be a political act uh, to, to go to your broad sense of politics. Um, but but to, to drill down a little bit further on, on the sex question, right, um, you have linked, because there are a lot of people both on, on the center left and on the right who have argued this, this trans phenomenon is very much at odds with the interests of women, and therefore it's at odds with feminism. Um, you, you say the opposite in this book. You say that, in fact, this trans ideology is very much derivative of the premises of feminism. Could you like flesh out that argument a little bit more? Not to make a pun about flesh, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're, that's all we're doing these days is fleshing things out. Uh, yes, it is, and, and it's where a lot of conservatives get confused because they'll say, Obviously, there's this contradiction between transgenderism, which says there's no such thing as sex and men can be women and vice versa, and feminism, which says women are a distinct category and I'm woman, hear me roar, and don't you, patriarchy, tell me what, what I am and, and what I think. There's also an apparent contradiction with the homosexual rights movement, right? The argument of homosexual rights was we're born this way, no one would choose to be born this way, and, and you ought to be tolerant and accepting of various things we want to do. Okay, I understand that argument as far as it goes, but, but you can't both say we're born this way, sexual orientation is immutable, you, you have to tolerate that the, my very self-definition is that I am a man and I'm attracted to other men, and then at the same time say sex itself is changeable and forget about sexual orientation. And there's really no such thing as men and women. And there's actually 70 other genders and we can all just sort of change everything. I mean, th those seem mutually exclusive, but they all derive from the same lie, the same false anthropology that the feminists really pushed in the 1970s. Namely, that there's no difference between men and women. That's, that's what they were saying. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Women can do anything in any realm that men can do. There's really all of the differences between men and women are superficial and they, they have no bearing on the real world. Okay, well, if that's true, then I guess you have to redefine marriage, don't you? Because marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Well, if there's no difference between men and women, then of course you're going to redefine it to include two men and two women. But, oh, wait a minute. If there's no difference between men and women, then men can simply become women and women can become men because there's no difference. Frankly, they already are. But how are they? They look a little different. Well, I guess it just has to be in their own mind, which I cannot argue with. I could argue with that no more than I could argue with your preference of chocolate or vanilla ice cream. You know, there, this is now totally outside the realm of reason. It's a, it again is part of this sort of Gnosticism, this secret knowledge that contradicts the reality before our very eyes, which is that obviously men and women are different. And, and the traditional standard holds that men and women are, are complementary rather than identical and indiscernible. But 
but a very, very few people are willing to defend that. Even conservatives these days are not often willing to stand up for that, that fundamental distinction in human nature between men who are from Mars and women who are from Venus. Um, you know, I think that that your, your issue, your larger issue in the book about um, whether or not we have an actual vision on the right to advance, to match the left's vision, um, rather than uh, escaping into a sort of proceduralism, I think it's very much true here as well, right? What we might term conservative feminism or um, Christina Hoff Summers calls it opportunity feminism. And I, I love um, Christina's work. I'm actually, she's coming on the podcast in, in a couple of weeks, but, um, and and I speak with De- Dr. Deborah So about this as well in my very first episode of this podcast. So um, I really respect these people and their work. Um, and I think they're they're doing important things um, in terms of of restoring some semblance of what I might call statistical um, reality. But I, I think ultimately their vision suffers from the same problem mm-hmm. that you point out the right does more broadly, which is to say it doesn't give a vision of what it is really to be a woman or a man, yeah. right? Um, there, because that would imply something that we ought to be, which is um, just just something that um, our, our current politics on left and right just don't want to grapple with. And, and as you point out in this book and in the beginning when we started talking, that doesn't necessarily actually mean a move away from small L liberalism in terms of, of for example, the law um, or, or coercion from the state, but it does imply that there might actually be a judgment. Um, there might be a good way to be a woman and a bad way to be a woman, or there might be a good way to be a man and a bad way to be a man. And that is something, I think we are just not ready for that conversation almost anywhere on the political spectrum. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I'm sitting with my wife, it's a Friday night. Well, since we've had a kid, we've never left the house at all. But before we had our sweet little bundle of joy, we would often go out to dinner. We'd say, okay, where should we go? I don't know. Maybe Chinese. I don't know. Maybe the Italian place. I don't know. Maybe this. I don't know. Where, where do you want it? Where do you want it? Where do you? And eventually, my wife will turn to me. She'll say, hey, hubby, man up. Genesis 3, buddy. Make a decision. I'm sick of doing this. <laughs> and she is, she'll, she'll say head of household, right? And she, it's somewhat ironic, but also not ironic. She's saying there, you have a specific role here. You have certain obligations. You know, you don't need to be a knuckle dragging tyrant, but let's go. Let's end this frivolous debate. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that I've never washed a dish and I'm not suggesting that she's never made a buck. I've washed more dishes than I would like to. And she's probably made more dollars than she would like to. But we uh, recognize that there, there are some differences here. Every happy couple I've ever seen recognizes that there, there are just roles for people that they're better suited to. If I had to watch my son alone for a week, I, I don't, I hope he would survive. I know that I wouldn't survive. It would be very, very difficult that, that uh, there is a T loss, right? To use the, the really technical term that things actually do have a purpose. We're here in a political society for a purpose. We're here on earth for a purpose. Physical things uh, have a purpose, right? Natural things have a purpose. And uh, so you, you, have to have a, a coherent view of the world. And in our society, that, that we, we just live in such a, a cynical and decadent time that, that nobody is willing to admit that sort of thing. And it, I, I don't just mean to say I could snap my fingers and solve all of this in a, in a moment. I don't think that I could. You know, there, there are people who are, say, Catholic integralists who say, I've got the answer. Here's the answer. Follow Catholic teaching to a T, get rid of the United States, call it the empire of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and uh, submit to the pontifex, and you're all set. 
And they go, okay, well, fine, you know, I'm a mackerel snapping papist myself. And uh, so I guess in some ways this would appeal to me, although people have some quibbles with the current, uh, current pontiff, uh, but uh, that's just not going to happen. So then what are you going to do? How are you going to corral all of these sort of people to have some common understanding of what our purpose is, what we're doing here, the basic things we can agree on, hopefully that men are men and women are women. And I, I, my modest suggestion for this is prudence. This is a virtue we're no longer allowed to talk about because it doesn't fit well onto little ideological manifestos. Prudence is a very neglected virtue, but it's a conservative one. I, I think we ought to look at our political tradition and see what has worked well, what has led people to flourish. We need to look certainly to the natural law as well, uh, uh, you know, what, what things are for. And uh, uh, we, we need to come to some sort of understanding of those standards and then be willing to enforce them and, and recognize that, you know, on, this, on the squishy right right now, you know, the, the, the drag queen story hour defenders, let's say, they they will sometimes say that drag queen story hour is one of the blessings of liberty, which if you can hear that, that's James Madison rolling in his grave at that very suggestion. But, uh, for, and first of all, it also shows you that liberty is instrumental in the American project, right? We, we pursue the blessings of liberty, that there is an end, which is justice, as James Madison writes in, in The Federalist. But if you really believe, as the argument goes, that we can't ban drag queen story hour because if we do that, then if we tell perverts they can't twerk for toddlers, then they'll tell us we can't go to church on Sunday. As a practical matter, they've already been doing that for quite some time. But also, what you're saying is you do not possess moral conscience. You do not possess a reliable faculties of reason that you actually can't distinguish between true and false and right and wrong and good and bad. And the problem with that is, I mean, it's the big Lebowski problem. You know, when, whenever you make a, an observation, political or moral observation, you'll say, well, <laughs> that's just like your opinion, man. Well, sure, but opinions are statements of fact from one's perspective. Opinions are not preferences, right? They're not purely subjective. You're saying, this is what I'm seeing, and let's all kind of deliberate and persuade one another. If you can't do that, if you, if you say, I don't have reason or, or moral conscience, you are abandoning the entire project of self-government, which I think we have done. I think we've, we've unfortunately done that. And so now we're, we're ruled by a different kind of pontifex. He doesn't wear a cassock. He wears a lab coat. He doesn't wear a pectoral cross. He wears a stethoscope. And his name, of course, is Dr. Fauci and the rest of the, the faceless bureaucrats who, who run our lives for us on, and, and exclude us from political deliberation. And I think they've run the place off the rails. Yeah, I really like uh, the insertion of prudence here because it seems to me there has to be, especially in the United States where we do have a tradition of liberalism, um, there has to be some balance between uh, still recognizing that there is such thing as an objective good mm -hmm. and an objective bad, an objective common good even, um, but having a little humility about, as you say, different people have different opinions, but they're not just preferences they're, they're the result, they have to be the result of a process of reason, or if you're religious of revelation, they have to, um, you know, uh, there has to be some, some boundaries upon um, those, those different opinions, if we're going to have any kind of coherent society. Um, this, this episode is going to be released right after, uh, we're, we're right now going into the July 4th weekend, but this episode will come out after the July 4th weekend. Um, if, let's close with this, given given the holiday. Um, it seems like we don't have that agreement, and that is not only necessary in order to not be speechless, as you say, um, 
it's also necessary for a country to have citizens, particularly citizens who aren't bound by, you know, race or um, ethnicity or religion, um, you know, don't have similarities to fall back on in, in that way. It's necessary for citizenship, it seems to me, for us to have some some body of commitments that that perhaps are not completely coercively universal, but nevertheless sweep in the vast majority of people in the society. Um, you know, what is the future of the Fourth of July um, in that regard? Can will it, it survive as a celebration? Um, of 1776, of this country, of those common good, or those common goods that our founding has committed us to? Or um, are we too far gone? I always kind of ask this optimism, pessimism question, and this is a safe space for pe pessimism is what I always say. So you don't don't feel like you have to give the, the, the positive answer. But, um, you know, what, what do you see as the future of the 4th of July? And what do you see as, as the future of, of this country um, given how little we seem to be able to to come together on any kind of vision of the common good. Well, uh, on the pessimism, optimism thing, a friend of mine describes a conservative pessimist as someone who says things can't get any worse and a conservative optimist as someone who says, oh, yes, they can. And so I, I don't know exactly which way we'll fall down on. The 4th of July, Independence Day, is facing its most significant challenge ever. And it has within the past few weeks from our new National Independence Day, Juneteenth. Juneteenth was a local tradition from Galveston, Texas, that uh, represented the arrival of, of a ranger uh, who told Texans that the slaves had been freed years prior. Uh, this was after the Emancipation Proclamation, before the 13th Amendment. As Barack Obama said last year, uh, Juneteenth is not about victory. It's about all the work that has to be done. And, and this was said many times by the legislators who passed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act. I think that language is very important if you see that the, the purpose of this now becoming a federal holiday is not to celebrate Lincoln or the Civil War. We already have a holiday for that, which is Memorial Day. It's not to celebrate American freedom and independence. We already have a holiday for that. It's the 4th of July. It's to create a new Independence Day, to reframe the country and to put slavery at the center of it as the 1619 Project explicitly sets out to do. As you point out, uh, we don't have a common ethnicity in the country. We don't have a common creed and less, less so every day. Uh, we don't have a common language even as, as the subject of my book. Uh, we, it, for, I'm not even discussing the difference between English and Spanish or anything. I'm saying the difference between English and woke English. Uh, but this is a problem that Abraham Lincoln saw in, in his Lyceum address. And he said, as as the founding era passes away, uh, then it's going to be hard to keep the nation together. And so we need to construct basically a, a civil religion, a civic religion about uh, all that binds us together and all of the glories of the revolution and all the glories of the founders. And, and we're going to have to keep that alive. This is why you have a, you know, a Greco-Roman temple housing, uh, housing our Zeus, uh, Abraham Lincoln in Washington, D.C. It's why you have these huge religious monuments to, to, the, to the founding and to the great men in our history. And that is now explicitly under attack. Statues are being torn down all over the country. People laughed at Trump when they said that tearing down statues of Robert E. Lee was going to lead to tearing down Lincoln and, and Washington and Jefferson. It happened within a couple of years, and, and they're moving to do that now. 
and you're, you're seeing this challenge for the uh, 4th of July when we're, we express our gratitude to the great men who gave us our country versus Juneteenth when we express grievance and resentment and uh, impatience at the work that the work that still needs to be done. So as you can tell, I'm not totally rosy about the state of things right now. The one thing that gives me hope, however, is that there's a, a disparity between what our self-appointed ruling elite are pushing uh, and pushing through not just the government, but through the institutions, through BLM, through activist groups, uh, and the, the people, the ordinary people of America. These parents showing up to school boards to yell about critical race theory gives me so much hope. These parents showing up to school boards saying, hey, stop transing my kids. Stop telling my four-year-old that he's, he's actually a little girl and no one can tell him otherwise, uh, which is happening in preschools in Brooklyn. Those parents give me great hope. And they come in all colors and all sorts of stripes. And they're saying, we will not go along with this. And actually going all the way back to Antonio Gramsci, one of the really brilliant Marxist philosophers who I, I consider him the Mac Daddy of political correctness. He, he observed that the reason radical revolutions had failed before, before him was that uh, the, the revolutionaries never got hold of the common sense that, uh, you know, they had all sorts of theories as to how to liberate the oppressed working classes, but the oppressed masses didn't like the theories. They actually liked their country and their traditions and their families and their communities. And you are seeing that happen today. Uh, I do think time is of the essence, uh, you know, Hemingway describes going bankrupt as happening gradually then suddenly. And I think we're kind of in the suddenly phase. We, we went from, you know, having one definition of marriage or a general definition for all of human history until to random, you know, radically redefining that and then to transing the kids in about six or seven years. So things are happening very quickly. We're tearing down the statues. We're creating a new Independence Day. So we do need to empower those common ordinary people to, to push back against the ruling elite. And that, that's becoming increasingly difficult uh, because, because conservatives don't have that courage. If they reawaken that, that one virtue, even if they have just a kind of hazy sense of what we're after, even if they just use their prudence, I, I think there is still hope. But uh, tick tock, tick tock. Well, on that both pessimistic and optimistic note, uh, Michael Knowles, thank you so much for joining High Noon today. You can pick up Michael's book uh, from the publisher, which I believe is Regnery, right? That's right. Um, as well as, you know, buying it on all of the tech oligarch websites like Amazon. Um, and you can access more of his speeches and his work in the Daily Wire. And thank you to our listeners. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by sitting, hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be, be, be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>